Hi, and welcome back to TPI's podcast, To Think Minimum. It's Tuesday, January 26th, 2020, and I'm Scott Walston, President and Senior Fellow at the Technology Policy Institute. I'm joined by my co-host, DPI Senior Fellow, Sarah O. Oh. And today we're excited to talk with Ambassador Grace Coe. Ambassador Coe is U.S. Representative and Head of Delegation to the International Telecommunications Union World Radio Communication Conference 2019. She's also a Special Advisor for International Communications and Information Policy in the Bureau of Economic and Business Affairs. And if you think that's not enough, before joining the State Department in 2019, she was a partner in DLA Piper's telecommunications group, serves as special assistant to the president for technology, telecom, and cybersecurity policy at the National Economic Council, deputy chief counsel to the subcommittee on communications and technology in the U.S. House of Representatives, policy counsel at Cox Enterprises, and even more, she's a BA from Yale University and a JD from the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Scott. I'm looking forward to it. Well, I guess the first question is, how come you can't hold down a job? <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly, my husband basically has business cards, or he's basically had the same job for the past 15 years, and I've had, I don't know how many, and, but he keeps collecting my business cards because he thinks it's funny. He just keeps like <laughs> waving the stack with them at me going, look at this. <laughs> I actually would like to come back to it at the end because your career is fascinating. Yeah. But before we get there, the main thing you had been working on the last year was the World Radio Conference. And tell us a little bit about what that is and what you had to do, because it sounds like an incredibly complicated and difficult process and event. And arcane to boot, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's one of those things that no one knows about, but is actually really incredibly important. So the International Telecommunications Union is a specialized agency of the UN, and it deals with the telecommunications treaties, essentially, or telecommunications relationships between nations. And the reason why that's important is because we do need to be able to globalize or harmonize certain things in order for nations to be able to talk to each other. Spectrum and satellite orbital slots in particular are the ITU sort of and Spectrum obviously does not respect any borders, right? So we do have to figure out how to harmonize our use of spectrum so that we're not interfering with each other and we're actually all getting the best and highest use of the resource. It's a similar situation with satellite orbital slots. They go all over the globe and we have to basically be able to coordinate those. So the ITU governs two treaties and I think it's two treaties, but the primary treaty that we're talking about here are the radio regulations, which are the rules that govern the use of spectrum by everyone on earth. And the World Radio Communication Conference is the conference by which those regulations are updated. So every four years, the world gets together and updates that treaty. And every country that belongs to the ITU, about 193 countries, will sign that treaty and abide by those regulations. How much work is there leading up to it? And how do you decide what the priorities are that well, that I guess in this case that the United States wants to achieve. And then how do you prepare to work with other countries to achieve them? Because presumably each of them has their own priorities. So it's such a good question. And so such a difficult process. So the World Radio Communication Conference, as I said, happens every four years. So the agenda for each conference is set by the previous conference. So in Work 15, we call them WORCs or WRCs, the Work 15 set the agenda for Work 19. And each country lobbies to basically figure out how to get to their priorities into the agenda for the next conference. And so Work 15 set the agenda for Work 19. And then not only that, kicked off a four-year study cycle of engineering and regulatory analysis to figure out how we can get those questions answered so that we can figure out how to update the radio regulations. So right after Work 15, there was a conference preparatory meeting right after that that assigned all of the questions, all of the agenda topics to study groups at the ITU. 
the ITU study groups then went off and did their analyses, did their engineering studies. Now, each member country sends a delegation to each of those study groups to produce contributions, to produce analyses. The United States obviously participates very heavily in those. So for the past four years, we have been prepping for this WARC-19. That means that uh, on the government side, NASA, NOAA, FAA, and everyone else, DOE, NTIA, have all been working to figure out how to answer the questions that have been posed for Work 19. And on the commercial side, the FCC gathers commercial inputs and puts together sort of inputs for that. At the ITU study process, actually, the study group delegation usually consists of both private sector and governmental sector folks, and we produce U.S. contributions to put into the study groups. The study groups then create the engineering analyses that form the basis for ultimately proposals that will go into WRC. It's a very long, arcane process. It's a lot to learn in a few months, but that's how that works. So then tell us what were the objectives for 2019, which of them were accomplished. And then, since you said one of the outcomes of the conference is to set the agenda for next time, what's the agenda for 2023? Yeah, yeah, that's it's definitely good stuff. So... I've talked about a little bit about the study group process. Mm -hmm. The actual contribution process is sort of a second side procedure where you have the FCC and the NTIA along with states sort of figuring out what we're actually going to do now that we have these studies, right? So we get this intergovernmental group together and we try to agree on what our priorities are and what we believe that the U.S. should stand behind as our priorities. So in this cycle, uh, I think what was on everybody's mind was millimeter wave for 5G. We wanted to allocate millimeter wave spectrum for 5G, and there were a number of bands that were teed up above the 24 gigahertz band for 5G. And the questions there really have to do very much with who are the incumbents in those bands? Can those bands be shared in some way to be able to allow for 5G? What impacts do they have? What conditions do we need to set on the use of those spectrum bands for 5G in order to protect incumbent services? What Actually, we, can I interrupt? Yeah, I'll just course. ask a question Feel about free. that. So those were all questions that you sort of wanted to answer leading up to it. Mm -hmm. But it started in 2015. What did people think in 2015 were going to be some of the answers to those questions? And did they turn out to be right? That's exactly, I think that is exactly why they do those four-year studies. People did not know in a lot of ways what those answers were going to be. Some people, I mean, obviously everyone had their preconceived notions, right? Like, oh, you're never going to be able to share with this particular service, or you're never going to be able to share with this particular service. But you have to go through the engineering studies. And the idea really, and the ITU has always been a technical agency, right, where you actually have engineering studies done. The idea really is to go through and do the actual work to actually figure out what can actually be shared, right? Because we all know this is a very scarce resource and we We've got to be able to use it for a variety of purposes, and those purposes keep proliferating as things go on. So uh, I think you do a number of sharing studies. One of the biggest questions really, though, in 2015 is essentially what are going to be the characteristics of 5G in the millimeter wave? We really didn't have a very good idea. And so we were still finishing LTE loop rollouts. Yes, in fact, exactly. they weren't finished. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But I mean, the, the standards for 5G are being developed, obviously, in 3GPP, but then they get ratified at or essentially adopted through the ITU. So the ITU is the standards body for developing the requisite parameters for 5G. In 2015, I'd say that they were relatively unfinished, but the point of the study cycle is to run through that technical process and essentially provide those characteristics to the relevant study groups that are doing the incumbent sharing analyses and figure out how to move forward from there. So what we did end up doing is essentially getting those parameters. And one would argue that maybe it was very difficult for, I think, countries to agree on what those characteristics ultimately would look like for 5G. 
And so I think, you know, even now we're not really sure what those characteristics will be for 5G in the millimeter wave area. So I think there was a lot more speculation within the technical studies. So there wasn't as much certainty, actually, I think, in what was being studied. Related to that topic, how much do you interact with the IEEE with standard setting? So 5G, they're working it out in a different body. And Mm -hmm. then WARC in ITU is a separate body. Mm -hmm. How much overlap is there? I mean, industry is the same, I mean, Mm -hmm. in both bodies, but in governance, how do you interact with IEEE? Yeah, I think so. It's two separate tracks, really, ultimately. But like you said, I think there are a lot of participants who participate in both processes. And so there is some crossover and some feedback back and forth. But ultimately, this is an ITU process. And what you'll see is that what study groups there, so if a particular study group, study group five in this instance, decide that this is what the parameters or the characteristics of the 5G service will be, that is what is used in the studies that are done to determine whether or not 5G can share with a fixed satellite service or something else, you know. And so that's how that ends up working. It is a very arduous process. There's a lot of debate that goes on internally within the countries as they do their studies and try to determine whether or not they've decided on the right parameters and they've gone through and done the studies correctly. And there's quite a bit of debate within the interagency and obviously also with the private sector. And as that gets moved forward into the study group process, then there's additional debate among study group members, which come from different you know, administrations as well, different countries. Before we talk about what the agenda for 2023 is going to be, which I guess you know, or at least it's been set up, tell us a little more about what actually happened. So when I think of these conferences, I think of a bunch of people sitting in a big room around, maybe it's a circle, maybe it's you know, theater-style seating, and listening to a lots of boring speeches. <laughs> and I mean, I just, I can't stand that stuff. And there are plenty of people, in, especially in Washington, who think that having a meeting is work. And it is work in the sense that it's hard to stay awake and not be annoyed. But this happens with all these people, many of whom do want to just give big speeches, and yet you actually do come away with something. It's How does that happen? Insane. <laughs> I think, I don't think I would have believed it if I hadn't seen it myself. So it's actually worse than what you're imagining, Scott, <laughs> if you can believe this. First of all, 3,400 delegates came to the WRC this year, and it's more than any event ever attended before. I think the 5G millimeter wave issue really sort of wow. caught fire. And so you get a lot of people coming in. Primarily, the WRC had been sort of a satellite operator's game because that is where most of the spectrum is allocated for satellite usage. But now with the identification for 5G services, I think you're going to see more terrestrial players at the table on this front. So what you have is 3,400 people in the plenary session, but most of this work gets done outside in drafting groups, or which essentially consists of you know large, I think, committees, then broken down into smaller committees to work on one aspect or another with people with a rapporteur or a chairman sort of trying to understand what the will of the group is and to put it into a document. And then those interminable debates about whether or not the comma goes before uh, this particular word or after a particular word actually occur on that level. And they do occur. So is some of this like group projects in primary school where everybody has to say something and then only one person does all the work? Uh, A little bit, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I will say that the chairman and the rapporteurs like really did the the yeoman's work. They pulled together the variety of suggestions and sort of resolved all the disagreements that happened at the drafting level and then pushed them up to the next level of adoption and movement forward. So in a nuts and bolts kind of way, that's how that operates. And the U.S. obviously does offer quite a few folks to actually help with the drafting. We have a large delegation. We have a lot of expertise. So we do try to offer people. It sounds like you actually came away kind of impressed by the process, setting aside whether the substance is what you wanted to happen, that 
it actually happened. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, it's amazing that it actually happened. I mean, just knowing that there were so many different positions going in and then finding that people do actually want to resolve this and actually get to an answer without actually getting to a vote, which amazes mm. me, right? So this is an important fact about the ITU and about the World Radio Communication Conferences that you do not vote. This is all done by consensus. Everyone agrees. 3,400 people consensus? 3,400 people, 193 countries agree. Now, okay, so consensus means consensus, right? It's one of those sort of uh, brilliant tautologies that you just sort of don't really want to unpack too much. Mm -hmm. But I had one person explain it to me by saying, you know, when some island nation doesn't agree, you still have consensus. When the United States does not agree, you do not have consensus. So that's one way of looking at it. Sometimes it's when the chairman says there's consensus. And certainly the chair of the conference, Dr. Alma Bradawi, was very, very good at sort of making sure that he drove us to a real consensus that he could call consensus. But the idea here is that everyone has agreed to these particular requirements, these particular regulations, and that is absolutely a huge incentive for all countries to ratify and abide by them. So I heard you give a keynote speech in September at the TPRC conference before the work. Yeah. <laughs> and audience members were bringing up their memories from prior meetings saying that they're like midnight, like <laughs> disagreements and they're not sure if the treaty will get signed because it gets up to the line. You know, this year, were there major disagreements? Like what kind of conflict is there in getting to consensus? There's tons of conflicts. It's exciting as they described a lot of late nights. In fact, I will say that one of the, I don't know if this is always true, but, you know, people were talking about how this is a very different work from other works. I suspect that none of the works are really ever typical, but in this one, there were a lot of issues that were left to the last minute. So very few issues got wrapped up early. And so there was quite a bit of concern that we were not going to be able to get to get all of our work done in time. Certainly the issue, the millimeter wave identification issue did not get done until the last two or three days. That was pretty hair-raising. And what it ended up being, and this is how a good chair can actually effectuate this kind of consensus and compromise, is by sort of pulling everyone together, getting the final decision makers in the room, and in a, well, small, dark, smoke-filled room, actually it's not smoke-filled anymore because it's, you know, 2020, but in a small, dark room and forcing everyone to talk to each other about what's really important and what they really need. And that is exactly how some of those decisions get made. And then it's a scramble to sort of get all of the, you know, I's dotted and T's crossed by the time so we can get all of the documents across the finish line. But that happens quite a bit. In fact, you know, a lot of the work does happen within the drafting groups themselves where everyone's arguing about placements of semicolons and whether or not, you know, provision means the same thing as deploy. Then a lot of the other work also happens offline. So when you're between sessions where you're going up to somebody from Germany and saying, okay, look, you and I are disagreeing here. What is it that you need in order for us to get to a yes on this? And then that work gets done as well. So that's happening constantly 24-7, which is why this stuff can take all day long till midnight. And, you know, you use your translators as long as you can, et cetera, et cetera. It's hair-raising work. It's a very adrenaline-filled activity. I did lose weight. Mm. It's come back. <laughs> a number of us noticed that we had all lost weight during this whole thing. You're eating, you know, you've brought your bag of nuts. I know this one woman had a locker full of freeze-dried food that she kept on, on the premises because she wanted to make sure she had something to eat. So I do that when I travel. I always carry snacks with me. Snacks are important. But, but like with these sort of private, nego- maybe that's the wrong term, but these private negotiations that you had to have with people, is there time built into the schedule or are you supposed to sort of like point to somebody and say, come with me, let's go outside? Is there time built into the schedule? Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. 
mm-hmm. but just as often not. Just as often you're saying to UAE or you're speaking to China or you're speaking to Russia and saying, what is it that you need? And here's where we're disagreeing. Can you find your way to come this far? And what's the reason for not taking this particular path and trying to understand? And you have to remember, there are delegates all over the place and delegations from everywhere, all handling different issues. You try to marry it all together. It gets really weird and complicated when you're actually starting to do the horse trading, actually. And you're trying to say, all right, if I come with you this way, will you come with me on this one? And it just depends on what the priorities are for each country. So that's another interesting aspect of this, I guess. In some ways, it seems to take place in isolation from other things that are going on in the world. Like you just said, you know, we have to talk to Russia and China, which we do anyway. But like, is it possible you could say, not saying that you did, but you could say, hey, Iran, North Korea, Russia, China, we got to go talk to work out some spectrum deal. And you work out some spectrum issue that has nothing to do with all of the conflicts. So the idealistic answer or the politic answer really (laughs) is that the ITU is a very specialized agency and all of these decisions and proposals are based on technical studies. So to some degree, it is very much insulated from, I think, the general political sort of milieu against which this is happening. But, uh, you know, to some degree, I think also it's affected by those things. So certainly I think climate change was a factor in sort of the discussion of the 26 gigahertz band. The United States calls it the 24 gigahertz band because that's the portion we'll be using. But certainly climate change is part of the discussion there. And I think there's, you see some of it creeping in. Why is 26 gigahertz related to climate change? As you probably recall, there were a lot of questions about whether or not deployment of 5G services would actually impact the ability of these weather data collection satellites to gather information on water vapor at the 23.6 gigahertz band. And I think that raised the question of, you know, climate change tracking and monitoring weather events, et cetera. So that was something that was very much in question and also colored, I think, some of the debate while we were there. And countries, regions had very different takes on whether or not that that would be the case, depending on what their technical studies showed. Where was Russia on this? So Russia has a tendency, and Russia was very interesting generally. So Russia has a tendency to want to protect its scientific services. And so they tend to be very, very conservative when it comes to sharing with their scientific services or any scientific service. Now, it's not clear to me exactly what they have there, but they were very protective of those particular services. Europe also was very protective of the... But when you say that Russia was protective of its scientific services, you mean they didn't want there to be any risk that it would affect weather? The 5G would affect weather. Mm. And, and Interesting. So they had very, very stringent protection values offered for any sort of 5G deployment. I China, tend to think of them as not caring so much about climate change because yeah, they, they're like the one country that might benefit from it. Well, all the rest of us... Yeah. 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 It's very cold in Siberia. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Well, I mean, not to make light of it, but what was interesting also, I asked China directly why they had offered a very stringent value for protections on the 26 gigahertz band. And they also said climate change. Interesting. Right. Interesting. Right. And then obviously the Europeans were very bullish on protecting the 26 gigahertz band. So they also had a very stringent value, whereas Africa, the Arab nations, many parts of Asia, many countries in Asia had, and the United States and the Americas region all had less stringent values for protections. I mean, we're not saying, certainly everyone wanted to protect that band, right? But we just had very differing places as to what we wanted to do. So I think in the end, what we ended up with ultimately was really, I think you would have to call it a political decision that negative 33 would be sufficient to protect the weather service satellites. I think you're going to have to explain what negative 33 oh, means. I'm sorry. It's not like so, the <laughs> Article 46 in Star Wars right? or, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> Order 56 or whatever it was. Right? <laughs> 
So essentially what we're looking at here are out-of-band emissions. So the amount of energy that leaks out of the energy that gets put through a base station or a device. And we want to make sure that the out-of-band emissions going into the 23.6 gigahertz band, where the noise essentially that's going into the water vapor band, ends up being as minimal as possible to avoid polluting that band or avoid corrupting the data in that band. And whereas I think, whereas the United States and the Americas region had come in with a negative 28 value, negative 28 decibel watts into 200 megahertz. I think the Russians had come in with something like negative 55. The Europeans had come in with negative 42 decibel watts into 200 megahertz. So it was a real question as to whether or not we were going to be able to reconcile those. And ultimately, I think what we ended up with was negative 33 for the first eight years, negative 33 decibel watts into 200 megahertz. And then after eight years, a step down to negative 39, which would be a more stringent value but something that the manufacturers and equipment builders would have to build towards. So what are the implications of that? Like, What kinds of services does that mean we will be able to have and we won't be able to have? It means that, so for one thing, it sort of means that less of the 24 gigahertz band will be available to us because essentially you're putting in guardrails essentially to keep the noise from getting into the protected band. And when you talk about smaller portions of the spectrum or you know, cutting off portions of the spectrum, you're talking about smaller pipes, essentially, right? Because you're not going to be using the full set of spectrum that's been allocated. So, I mean, the value of this millimetric wave spectrum at this point, at this, you know, is the giant fat pipes, big swaths of spectrum through which you can sort of pour, like, mm-hmm. you know, get your gigabit speeds. And when you reduce the size of that pipe, you get smaller speeds. So what would you say? Were you, how did you feel about that outcome? Were you pleased or disappointed? I think this was a good outcome ultimately, right? Mm -hmm. In the end, we got to a place where we could actually start deploying 5G with the equipment that we have now. And it still means that we have, you know, it may mean some adjustments to how some of the operators wanted to deploy, but I think it means that they are actually able to access equipment and get started on actually building those ecosystems. So that's a big plus. And for the United States, we have done a lot in the way of preparing for millimeter wave deployment. And because it is some of the spectrum that's more available to us, much more available than, say, the mid-band, right? Right. And that's where we'll get real new things from 5G if if there are some up there which we've never used. And it's exciting because, you know, if the United States moves quickly on millimeter wave deployments, we can be a good site for a good test bed, a good sandbox for anyone who wants to develop applications or services in the millimeter wave. So that gives us a leg up on being the first to build the sandbox, the first to be sort of the home for that ecosystem. So that's a plus, I think. Did Huawei and the issue of other Chinese manufacturers come up? during these because they would affect maybe all all kinds of these questions. Yeah. Generally speaking, I think the millimeter wave spectrum identification issue sort of lifts all boats for the manufacturers. Everyone now knows what to build towards and there will be regional harmonization or and global harmonization in, in a lot of situations. So what you'll see is their ability to build to very definite specs and also to gain the economies of scale because they're all producing for all countries at the specific... Oh, so this place. wasn't a case where one answer benefits Huawei, another answer benefits no. Nokia. Yeah, or anything like yeah that. Okay. this is much mm-hmm. more sort of an all boats kind of thing. What was interesting was that Huawei and Ericsson wanted to see a lot of the 6 gigahertz band, and this is where we start getting to the Work 23 issues. Mm-hmm. They wanted to see the 6 gigahertz band studied for mid-band 5G. And not just the six gigahertz band, but the very top of the five gigahertz to the very bottom of the seven gigahertz band. They wanted the whole thing sort of identified or studied at the very least over the next four years to see if we could use that for 5G. It was a big push from China. Whenever I met with them on a bilateral basis, they wanted to see if we could be supportive. And of course, you know that the FCC has an open proceeding on whether or not we're going to use six gigahertz for unlicensed use. And you asked a little earlier about how we get to our positions. A lot of our positions, at least in many instances, 
instances have to do with what our domestic policy is and how we sort of support and promote our domestic policies. So in this instance, because we don't have an answer on that six gigahertz proceeding, I was not willing to commit one way or the other mm-hmm. to allow for one thing or the other. What would happen if, say, with the six gigahertz proceeding in the U.S. did all go to unlicensed, let's assume away all the problems, and I know that's a big assumption, but what would happen if all of that went unlicensed, but the rest of the world is still considering it for 5G? I think it would be very bad for the Wi-Fi manufacturers, right? Mm -hmm. Because what they need, obviously, is global scale in order to be able to get the Wi-Fi equipment out there. What did happen was that Huawei and Ericsson were not successful in China. We're not successful Mm -hmm. in getting the entire 6 gigahertz band studied for 5G. What you did find, however, and this is interesting because mid-band obviously is trickier than the millimeter wave. So teed up for work 23 is a question of whether several bands are right for 5G, mid-band 5G identification. And that includes portions of the C-band and then 3300 to 3400, I think 70, and a chunk of the upper part of the six band. The upper chunk of the six gigahertz band is also considered. But those chunks, those bands, most of them are being studied only for one region or another, meaning the United States and South America. So North America, South America are considered region two. Asia is considered region three. Europe, Africa, the Middle East is region one. I'm sure I did that all sorts of backwards, but regardless, (laughs) (laughs) what we're finding is that that upper chunk of the six gigahertz band, is only being studied for 5G identification in region one. Hmm. That's largely because of the African push, I think, to want to do, to find some spectrum for mid-band for 5G. Why is Africa in particular interested, African countries in particular interested? Well, to be honest, I think that they do use a lot of Huawei equipment. Ah, okay. Yeah. Uh And so I think it makes sense for them to want to see if that's a viable place to be. I didn't see a huge amount of interest from the European countries individually. There was no interest in identifying six gigahertz for 5G in our America's region. You know, certainly during our regional conference, we did not see any interest and there was no appetite for doing that. But we are interested, obviously, in seeing some portion of mid-band identified for 5G. So we've identified other bands, 3,300 to 3,400, 3,600 to 3,800, I think. What do you think was the the biggest accomplishment and biggest disappointment of the conference? Ah, biggest accomplishment, certainly, like you said, it's a crazy situation where you have 3,400 people, 193 countries all agreeing. So just the fact that we were able to get to consensus without actually taking a vote is a huge accomplishment. Big priority for the United States was to come out with millimeter wave bands identified for 5G that were very much in line with the FCC's fast plan. And we did have that happen. So let's take those definitely as accomplishments. Mm-hmm. We also came out with some very interesting, I think, ability to start coordinating non-geosynchronous satellites and geosynchronous satellites in the V-band, which I think is 35 gigahertz, somewhere around there. Yeah, I can never keep the letters straight. I can never (laughs) keep the letters straight. But those were very necessary coordination procedures Mm -hmm. that needed to happen in order for a number of U.S. satellite companies to begin launching those mega constellations and to actually coordinate them with the traditional GSO satellites. So that was a huge accomplishment to get those regulatory coordination procedures in place. And again, like with any other agenda item, each country comes in or the regions come in with their different positions and to harmonize that on a very complex topic is incredibly difficult. So the fact that we were able to get that done was fantastic. Also coming up with a regulatory framework for these mega constellation satellites. So figuring out how to make sure that these 10,000 plus constellations are actually being deployed and not spectrum warehousing. That's a big plus. And we actually came up with reasonable milestones for that and agreed on them. So agreeing on any one of these things is pretty amazing. I guess some of the things that we were 
less thrilled about. I think we would have liked to have seen the WRC agree on higher power usage for Wi-Fi, outdoor use for Wi-Fi. But, you know, I think what we came away with was actually pretty good. What the work agreed to, the United States uses outdoor Wi-Fi and allows for higher power. We have specific, I think, conditions on how we tilt our antennas so that we don't interfere with satellites and radars and other things. But we do allow for higher power use than the rest of the world. We would have liked to have seen the rest of the world adopt what we do, but that's not something that they're ready for. And, you know, that's fine. We're going to continue to lead on that. I think we have a great competitive ecosystem for connectivity generally because of our outdoor use of Wi-Fi. I mean, you see cable sort of competing with mobile terrestrial services because of that outdoor use. And I think that's a big plus. Let me ask a question about the ITU more generally. What else is it good for anymore? <laughs> I mean, it used to be basically an organization that protected state-owned monopolists uh-huh. and blocked all competition. And then they evolved into an organization that made sure that they had very high settlement rates of calls to and from the U.S. so that U.S. consumers, whoever they were here, right, would right. subsidize foreign telephone companies. Now, I'm sure none of that's controversial, what I just said. <laughs> but it seems like they've evolved into yeah, <laughs> something yeah, different yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like, what do you think of the organization? What that I said before, let's assume it's right and not argue about it. Sure, sure. But What's different about it today? What else does it do now besides, I mean, the spectrum, it sounds like we need it. We need a forum for coordinating these things and the ITU is the natural one. What else does it do that's useful? Well, so the ITU has three bureaus, right? Mm -hmm. It's got the ITUR, which is the one I've been talking about, the ITU radio sector, which is where the radio regulations get updated. And this is a very necessary sector, as you can tell. We need to be able to figure out how to keep our satellites from banging into other satellites. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we like spectrum, we need to figure out how to coordinate use of spectrum with our neighbors, et cetera. All right, so let's just leave that one aside. ITUT has been taking on, they do their own standards as well, but they've been, you know, there's, I think a lot of people have been concerned that there's some scope creep in what the ITUT does, that they get involved in, I think, standards for technologies that may not be ripe for standards. They may be less transparent in terms of developing those standards. I think there is a good role for the ITU in terms of figuring out you know, how to have those conversations. I don't know that it necessarily covers, I think, I don't know that whether all of the conversations at the ITUT have necessarily been helpful or beneficial for the United States approach to emerging technologies. So I think upcoming this year is the World Telecommunication Standardization Assembly, which is the ITUT, the major meeting for the ITUT. And there will be a host of things considered. Global conferences on standards have got to be exciting. (laughs) I know. We'll figure, so I guess we're not going to see you in Hyderabad, Scott. I don't think so. Yeah. It's too bad. I think you'd get a kick out of it. And I think, you know, if you wanted to go in and throw a couple of bombs, it'd be kind of entertaining. Well, you know, the last time I did go to one of these things, I ended up getting so frustrating. I just left and walked down the highway. (laughs) (laughs) Where was that? That was Lithuania. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. Tell us. No, I think I I did. That's amazing. Yeah, maybe I don't think I want to see you wandering down the highway. <laughs> no. I'm not sure that would be safe. Nobody was um, too pleased. Sort of, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and then there's the ITUD, which very interestingly, there is an American woman who heads up the ITU development sector. And that was a concerted push on our effort from this administration to actually bring more United States citizens into leadership at these UN specialized agencies. And it's very difficult for a U.S. person to take on leadership in a UN agency, yeah. just it's very easy to sort of say, well, the US, you have everything anyway, so we're not going to give you this other thing. But 
Doreen Bogdan Martin is an extraordinary woman. I've called her a unicorn before, but she is very well versed in the IT. She's worked at the IT for quite some time, knows the development world very well. It's very odd also to have a developed country citizen be, you know, leader of the development bureau, but she's also worked in this space for quite some time. She's also very interestingly the first woman to be a head of a major bureau at the ITU in its, I think, 100 plus year history. So that's pretty impressive as well. It is. Also, so it's unusual for someone from a developed country to lead one of these uh, UN agency. How did we get other countries to agree to that, especially when people of other countries tend to, let's just say, not be too pleased with the Trump administration? Mm, and yet yeah. somehow the administration managed to make this happen. What happened? It's pretty interesting. It's a great mm-hmm. question. I think, you know, when David Rettel and Ajit Pai and Scott Pace and the U.S. delegation writ large all work together and reach out and they do the work that they need to do to build the relationships and to sort of support the U.S. position, we can actually do pretty well. We can be pretty effective. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what happened on the ground at WRC for us. But certainly with getting Doreen Bogdan-Martin, she herself is actually quite impressive and she's well-liked. So we started with the right candidate and I think the U.S. delegation really just pushed her forward and it was really impressive to see from what I understand. So that happened in 2018 of November where she was elected and she's gone through her first year. So we're really happy about that. She's absolutely great. Yeah, it's an amazing story. But speaking of impressive, I would like to know a little bit more about your career. It's such an unusual track. I mean, usually people say when you look back at a career, you can see how you got there and made each turn, and but you could never predict it from the front. I'm not sure I can understand yours from the front or the back. Mm-hmm. And, but you could have, after getting your law degree, you could have been just a very highly paid lawyer. And I don't want to say just, because yeah. obviously that's a really hard job, but you didn't. You've taken lots of different jobs and approaches and different things in public policy and as a civil servant. What has put you down this winding road? Yeah, I'm still stuck on the highly paid lawyer part. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's really funny. I wish I could say it was fairly directed, but it hasn't been. It's been sort of, I don't like to be bored. So that's one thing that's, I don't know, a failing or a strength. I'm not sure which, but I don't like to be bored. And so when I had the opportunity to go to the house, I went to the house. And when I had the opportunity to go into the White House, that's where I went because Mm -hmm. I wanted to see what that was like. And then this job. So one... (laughs) This one woman told me a third of your job should be stuff you can do, right? Regularly, easily. A third of your job should be a stretch Mm -hmm. for you. And then a third of your job should be pure white knuckle terror. Mm -hmm. So I think for the past three to five years, I've been doing essentially that. And it served me well in terms of just keeping me interested, engaged, and teaching me a ton, helping me grow a lot. So that's why I think the past five years in public service have been amazing. Also, there's nothing like public service, right? You just don't have the same sense of mission outside of public service. And you know, I do think it's good to go back and forth. In fact, I'd like to go back to the private sector because I think it's important for people in the public sector, in public service, not to get a swelled head because you're never as pretty or as smart or as funny or as interesting as when you work for the government and you have some sway over things. But I think it's important to sort of see the other side and make sure that you're serving from each side as best you can. But why they've been so short, I don't really know. But I think the 
opportunity to serve has been amazing. And so even if I do go back to the private sector after this, I think I'll probably come back to the public sector because I'm a public service at some point because it's just so, so rewarding, I think, on a personal basis. You know, you said a, a couple of things actually that contradict what a lot of people think about public service. Although first I need to tell a story. <laughs> when I was working on my PhD, I just took a year and I worked at the Council of Economic Advisors because yeah. that's the staff economist job is for somebody in the middle of their PhD. <laughs> and then when I was finished, I went back to just being in my cubicle, working on my dissertation. And uh, the phone rang and like picked up, it was from the New York Times. And like, oh God, what, the, what does the New York Times want from me? And of course, what they wanted was to sell me a subscription. <laughs> because <laughs> nobody ever, nobody wanted to talk to me anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyway, you're saying there's nothing like public service and all the kind of good work you can do. I think a lot of people, maybe not so much in Washington, but elsewhere, we have this image of the bureaucrat who sits there and does nothing. But I think we all know so many people in government who work so hard and know their topics so well and so deeply. It's kind of amazing. And the other thing is you're saying that basically the revolving door can be good. Yeah. And I mean, I agree with that. We want people in government who understand outside of government, whether that's firms or nonprofits or anything else yeah. and vice versa. Yeah. So, yeah. No, mm-hmm. I'm a bona fide swamp creature here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. No, parts of the swamp are good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's like, who doesn't like the swamps in Florida? They're, right. they're beautiful. Like, like, and, and there's a certain immunity you build up to the swamp, right? right? I mean, it's important to have that, right? right? There's some people who get dropped in here and they just, you know, wither and die because they're just not ready. It's like handing smallpox. Exactly. I mean, I don't want to minimize parts of the swamp because we all oh, know those no, problems. Oh, there are, I think there are a lot of great things that people don't realize. Are we swamp creatures? <laughs> oh God, I guess yes. so. Maybe we're just yes, brainwashed. Sarah, you are. You're a swamp creature. <laughs> you're, you're definitely a swamp creature. I will count the think tanks. Uh, that oh, that we're stronger here. for it. <laughs> That's right. Radioactive. <laughs> right. See, there you go. All right. Well, maybe as we've started now going into sci-fi, 1950s sci-fi, <laughs> might be a good place to wrap up. So, Ambassador Co. Thank you so much for joining us. This was Um, so much fun. Thanks for coming. Thanks so much for having me.